Second Peter, living on earth with a divine nature. This is part 18. And the title is Spotless and Blameless at the Day of the Lord. Spotless and Blameless at the Day of the Lord. The text is 2 Peter 3, 14, 15, and 16. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, we'll talk about that in a minute, be diligent, there's the verb, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, and be at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. And everyone said... Yeah, we're going through Romans. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So you'll notice Paul's letters are counted as scripture, the other scriptures. Let's pray. How blessed we are to come together on a summer Sunday like this, crack open your word, and study it. It's a lamp unto our feet. It's a light unto our pathway. It brings freedom. It brings understanding. It washes our hearts, washing with water of the word, the Bible says. It's more precious than gold. And so we ask that you'll help us to help us to understand it and help us to treasure it. So we don't just admit that it's inspired, but we admit its authority over our lives. We admit its authority over our lives where it conflicts with our own ideas and preferences. In Jesus' name, amen. What could be more important than the message of these closing verses? If you want to know how to be found in him, how to be without spot, how to be without blemish, how to be at peace until Jesus comes again, that's, that's what Peter's leaving with this congregation as he writes in some of his last words. He'll be dead soon. The same event Peter describes in this final chapter, the day of the Lord, that's, that's still to come in the future for us as well. It's coming for us just like it was coming for these early Christians. And I, I say that to point out the obvious, that these instructions are still relevant to us. They're still valid. They're still authoritative. I seem unusually loud, and I'm not shouting. Can we maybe just pull me down just a wee, wee bit? If you want to be confident and unashamed at Jesus coming, here's, here's what Peter says you have to do. Point number one. You must develop and maintain the same attitude that God has towards sin and wickedness. 
You have to develop the same attitude that God has towards sin and wickedness. That's very hard to do. It's very hard to do in our culture of relativism and, and uh, moral indifference. People who are able to sustain any biblical concept of divine judgment are almost always going to be slandered by today's culture as judgmental. And we don't want to be thought of as being against anything except maybe intolerance. And yet, the fact that this is a strong point in Peter's argument, it can be seen in the way that he has repeatedly stressed it in this letter. I mean, he just refuses to let anyone cherish the mistaken impression that God's mercy, God's mercy will somehow cancel out his hatred of sinfulness. And Peter and the Holy Spirit kind of lovingly pile up several examples to keep you and me from this very popular misconception about God's character. And so four times, four times in this letter, in passages we've already studied, Peter cites these actual occasions in history when God judged sin with this fierce intensity that just left people stunned and speechless. You probably remember some of these examples. First, God judged the angels when they lifted their hearts in pride against his will. And it says he, God, there's the verb, God cast them into hell. Remember, angels are created beings. They're not eternal beings. They're created beings, like we are created beings, but on, in a different category. But they are still created beings. And it says God, God cast them into hell, committed them to chains of gloomy darkness. Or look at this one. Remember this? If he... Who's the he? It's God. If he, did not, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he, who's that one? It's God. He, he brought, there's the verb, he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Or look at this one. Verse 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he, that's God, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is, to, what is going to happen to the ungodly. I want you to notice, before I do one more, I want you to notice, Peter says God did that, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He did that with a very specific intention. God thought this through. The specific intention of making them this, an example. Making them an example of visible, divine 
judgment to, to people who, who think they can kind of play his love against his wrath and cancel out any consequence to sinful actions. Notice that God specifically did all of these things. And, and here's why I say that. It's not, it's not the end of the world, but it troubles me. It's a very different picture of the, the phrase theologians use. It's of the passive wrath. That concept being expressed by Brian Zahn and Bruxy Cavey and Greg Boyd. The idea there is God's, God's wrath is, is what you automatically step into when you turn away from his love and grace. So, so here is God with his love and mercy, which he shows. This, that's what God's like. And, but you, if you walk away from that, out here, it's a jungle out here. So if you, if you leave God's grace and God's love and you go wandering off on your own, it's, it's just going to mess you up. Everything goes wrong. And, and that's, just, that's just what happens to everybody when they refuse God's love and grace. So, so that God's wrath is only manifested in the nature of sin. You, you reap what you sow. But there's no wrath in God's character. Do you see the difference there that I'm trying? If you leave God's love, you just get wrath automatically. Wrath is just reaping what you sow. It's the way life just crumbles and falls apart when you reject God. It's not God doing it. That's a very soothing view. But, but it, you have to do away with the data of Scripture. That's the problem. Sodom and Gomorrah didn't just happen to have this fire fall upon them. The angels are cast into hell. They didn't trip and fall. The flood wasn't just a really bad rainstorm. It says God sent it. God sent it. So that the wrath comes from it comes from a holy God. It isn't just the tangled up mess of life when you reject God. That's true, by the way. You reap what you sow. But it doesn't do anywhere near justice to the biblical teaching on, on the wrath of God. And Peter says God specifically did this to Sodom and Gomorrah so we would never walk away with the impression that he doesn't do that himself. The fourth reminder of judgment. 3.10. It's actually an easy one to miss, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Question. Why, why do all the elements of this earth, I mean, I get bad people. Why do all the elements of this earth have to be destroyed by fire? What's God, what is he up to? What is God so upset about on the day of the Lord? What am I supposed to learn from these repeated warnings? They're all over this letter from Peter that the Holy Spirit inspires. 
about God destroying, consuming, dissolving, burning. All those words are in there. I mean, that's the data we have to work with. And there's only one possible answer to that question. What am I, what am I supposed to see in that? What we're supposed to see is this whole created order has been marred and infected by sin. It's what Paul teaches in Romans 8 about all creation groaning. Not just people. The things you plant, the things you grow, the sun, the moon, the wind, the rain, the grass, the trees, the rocks, the lakes, the seas. Creation, it it groans under the weight of the fall. And so... Back to Peter's point. So how serious is God? How serious is God about ridding his creation of the presence of sin and wickedness? How far will he go in judging and purging all that is sinful? Well, Peter says pretty far. Pretty far. Peter says the first thing God will do on the day of the Lord is he will destroy all traces. There'll be a new creation. Wonderful beyond all description. But first... He will destroy all traces, even in the physical, non-rational created order. All the remains, all the evidence that there ever was sin and wickedness in this created world. That's what God's going to do. It's like like me. Not only do I not smoke, but I don't like sitting in a restaurant by someone two feet away who's smoking. God refuses to live with the taint of sin. He refuses to share his new world with it, even its residue. Everything gets burned up. Everything gets recreated. So such is God's total consuming passion against all sin. He's committed to a completely new, fresh creation. And when you think of that truth so rarely stated in today's church, it births a different image of God. You, you can see why we get so familiar and chatty and casual with Almighty God while the writers of the Scriptures are constantly trembling before God and the fear of the Lord. So what we're talking about here is being pure, spotless, and at peace. That's what Peter talks about, the closing verse of our text. Pure, spotless, at peace at the coming of Jesus. Here's, Here's the starting place, Peter says. You need to know God's heartbeat about sin. You you can't do anything else right until you understand this. He's not Santa. Share God's heartbeat. On sin, all sin, my sin, your sin. In this morally relative world where the media works overtime, under the influence, by the way, of the prince of this world to intimidate you into the same moral coma that it is in, constantly stay troubled, constantly stay horrified, constantly stay pained at the tolerance in your own soul to wickedness. I was reading the psalmist this morning. It's not in your notes, and they don't have a slide. I was just reading this in my office this morning. Psalm 119, 136. And the psalmist says, My eyes shed streams of tears because people don't keep your law. 
streams of tears, but it's not because he's sick, it's not because he's suffering, it's not because he's persecuted. There are other psalms dealing with all of that. This is nothing like that. This is the psalmist said, I can't sleep at night. I can't, I can't stop crying. Streams. This is not a light text. Streams of tears. Why? What's bothering you? I'll tell you what's bothering me. I look around me in a world and I see people, they don't keep God's laws. They don't care about them at all. I can't stand it, the psalmist says. See, that's the starting place to a holy heart. That's the starting place. We discover one of the incalculable measures of a truly godly heart. Let let me just talk about this for just one minute more. I have a real concern. I have a real concern for people under 40, particularly. It is never easy to hate something that most of the people around you love. puts you on the spot. It takes incredible courage. It singles you out for cultural condemnation. Deep, pure love for God is always the most courageous thing in the whole world because most people, in spite of the sappy love songs they hear, most people love moral indifference and self-centered gratification The world will allow you to love anything except godliness. And you need to come to terms with that. To love absolute holiness, to weep when God's law is broken, you have to be brave enough to stand on your own. You and I are called to be intolerant of sin while reaching out to all sinners with love and grace, but the truth. You you need God's word to keep your vision clear with regard to the ugliness of sin. Adultery is never romance. Smut is never funny. Violence isn't the way of Christ's kingdom. Arrogance and self-expression aren't beautiful in God's eyes. If we stop seeing those sins and a, a million others... If we stop seeing those sins for what they really are, we are lost. We are headed for judgment, regardless of what we have underlined in our Bibles or how high we put up our hands when Tom leads in a worship course. That's not the measuring stick. It's quite a text, this Peter text, isn't it? So that's the first step, all right? Develop and maintain God's perspective on sin and wickedness, and that's very, very hard to do. Point number two. I'm coming at it from another angle, but you'll recognize some of the same ideas. Recognize that spiritual growth must be hard won in this present world. I get that in verse 14, by the way. Therefore, beloved... Since you are waiting for these, the these he's just talked about, when, when the Lord comes, 
The elements are melted, dissolved. People are judged. New creation, the kingdom comes on this earth, manifested in all its glory and power. Since you are waiting for that, well, what do we do? There's the verb. Always look for verbs. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. And you wouldn't think this is possible given the tone of the text and and be at peace. So immediately on hearing of the need for Christians to emphasize diligence, there will be people who feel they must run to the defense of salvation by grace and not by works. So, so somehow, in a, in a twisted kind of way, some people have come to think that just because salvation isn't earned by works, it doesn't even require obedience, and it doesn't even require diligence. And it does. Please notice where Peter's emphasis lies. The diligence he's talking about is diligence in a very specific area. It takes... It takes a little, very little diligence to want forgiveness. There's no diligence necessary for that. It takes very little fortitude to want to go to heaven instead of hell. That's pretty easy. It takes very little diligence to sing songs of praise and worship to the Lord. It doesn't even take an enormous sacrifice to go to church fairly regularly. Now, all those things are very important. I'm not knocking any of them. They all have their place. But I'll tell you what requires diligence. What requires diligence is staying spotless and without blemish. That takes diligence. It takes diligence because that's where all the pressure to conform to this world, that's, that's the funnel point. That's where it all plays against us. It takes diligence because that's when we confront directly the loves and interests of the fallen side of our own human nature. That's where the, that's where the bump comes. It takes diligence because that's where Satan makes his inroads persist, persistently into our best intentions and plans and goals. So for all those reasons... Peter says if we want to be spotless and blameless and at peace when Jesus comes, boy, you've got to be diligent. And you, and, you, and you look at the people of our world, we will march and fight for anything but moral purity. We march for our rights, not our Creator's rights over His creation. It's His. That's the world you and I have to live in. That's the world in which we have to prepare for Jesus' coming. That's the world your kids have to prepare for Jesus' coming. When He will come and burn up everything that is dirty, sinful, unclean, with, without any doubt, the highest form of courage needed in the church today is the spiritual courage to hate sin and remain holy. And that is a grace that God only gives to diligent Christians. So I want to kind of wrap up 
giving you some very, very old, very old, time-proven principles for keeping your diligence. Okay? Keeping your diligence in this compromising world. A. Spend enough time in God's Word to soak your mind adequately with God's standards so that you can shape your actions by them rather than the values of your peers and friends. I, 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 I just smiled. I heard, I heard a, a very prominent person you would know, not a Christian person, but on a talk show, and she was saying that she was raising her children, she didn't want any closed-minded kids in her house, and she was letting them form their own values. There's a couple things wrong with that. One, and this is the big point, please get this. Nobody, from Adam and Eve onward to this day, not one human being on planet Earth has ever formed his or her own values. Your values are created and shaped by something, (laughs) by what you read, by what you get in a university class, by what you get in a library, by what you get in a church, by what you see on TV, by what you hear on music. Nobody lives in this vacuum where they just birth values out of nowhere. Everyone, everyone has values created for them. It's simply a matter of choosing where are you going to get them. The Christian says, well, here's, there is only one place. <laughs> this, is, this is where we get them. All my values. My values about sexual morality. My values about materialism. My values about, about idolatry. My values about time. My values about my own life. My values about relationships. My values about marriage. Where do I get I get them all here. Every one of them. By the way, if you didn't know this when you signed up for the Christian life, that's what you signed up for. If the mind is uninformed by God's word, it will not stay morally neutral in this kind of world. Not a ghost of a chance. You will simply adopt and digest the values of other students, teachers, partners at work, whoever happens to be the latest idol, set up by producers and directors, you, that's where you'll get your values. But you will get them somewhere. So A, spend enough time in God's Word to soak your mind adequately. Two minutes a day is not going to do it. Soak your mind adequately with God's standards so that you can shape your actions by them. Okay, B, When you read God's Word or good Christian teaching books, always have a pen in hand to list commands to obey, sins to avoid, examples to follow, warnings to remember. Truth has incredible power in the mind, but here's here's what I've learned in my own little brain. Truth has incredible power in the mind, but that power is usually short-lived. Ideas feel red-hot when they first come to you and almost irrelevant if you don't do something with them. I have books. I I take them off the shelf, 
and I look at books that I bought in, you know, 1987, and I will go through it, and I'll see paragraphs where I've got stars and underlines and arrows, and I look at that and go, what in the world is that all about? You have to keep things alive in your mind. The simple discipline of noting something of importance increases its influence over behavior tenfold. C. If you want to be diligent about staying spotless, look closely at the character of your friends. I'm not talking now about people you're trying to reach for Christ. That's totally different. I'm talking about the people with whom you share your life on a, on a deep spiritual level. And I want to tell you what the Bible says, what it calls for. It calls for us to be Christ-honoring in our relationships with others to the point of being sacrificial of relationships with people who don't share your passion for holiness. I went through and I was amazed in the New Testament, Proverbs and then the New Testament. I just made a note of all the texts. There are dozens of them. There are dozens of them that literally command, if you're with someone and they're not honoring Jesus, don't have anything to do with them. Do you know that? That your Bible says that? Obviously, obviously, you need to have an outreach to people who don't know Christ. You need to love them. You need to share the gospel with them. I get that. I'm talking about people who, who, with whom you are, and they profess to be followers of Christ, but with no visible manifestation of his lordship, and they pull you in that direction. And you just say, I'm sorry. Can't do it. Love you. Love Jesus more. D, if you want to be spotless and blameless at the coming of Jesus, spend enough time in corporate worship and private prayer, corporate worship, private prayer, that you give yourself a chance to develop a love for the holiness of God in and of itself. That takes time. It might be the greatest need of all. Developing a love for the holiness of God in and of itself. So you don't just pursue righteousness, you actually start to prefer righteousness. Your affections are being shaped. Every command is a burden until you love the God whom you obey. Every discipline is a chore until you taste and see the beauty of the holiness of God himself. Many Christians dabble at prayer only enough to discover that they aren't very good at it. They quit the discipline before they develop a taste for the discipline. They do it just enough because they know as Christians they're supposed to but they never persevere until they love to please God more than they love to do anything else. 
Never, never forget this enormous truth. No one can instruct you into loving God. You, you have to climb that mountain by yourself, and it takes the word diligence. Diligence. And until you truly love God more than life itself, you'll never bother making the sacrifices required to stay spotless and blameless until the day of Christ. Three. Last point. A final reminder about hearing God's word with an honest heart. It's in 15 and 16. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, and this just does not sound very flattering, does it? That the ignorant and the unstable, would you use those words? twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Those words, I mean, they actually go back to a thought Peter began developing in in verse 9, where he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that All should reach repentance. And so now, Peter wants to show that this idea is consistent with the teaching of the other apostles as well. Specifically, he says that the apostle Paul taught the same thing about recognizing the kindness of God in giving people time to repent. Where Paul did that is in Romans 2.4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Kindness forbearance, patience. And the problem is not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to to repentance. So Peter labors this point because he knows how easily, how easily we can interpret God's activity in the face of disobedience, even my own disobedience, as though somehow there really isn't a consequence to compromise and spiritual slackness. So Peter talks about, you know, don't, there's people that are saying, where's, the, where's this coming? Where's this coming, Peter says, and they just, they just don't, they just forget that God wants everyone to repent. And and Paul says, don't you know the kindness of God, his forbearance, it's, it's designed to lead people to repentance. And then, and then Peter says, there's people that twist these scriptures. He says his scriptures and the writings of Paul. That's what he's talking about. They twist this all around. That, that because everything seems to go on just like it always has gone on, then God can't be that serious about sin. And so Peter says they twist it to their own destruction. They twist it to their own destruction. Peter and Paul both teach God waits for people to repent 
because only repentance brings escape from judgment. That's what Peter and Paul both teach. And the only reason God gives time for sinful people is to lead them into repentance. So, so if there are areas in my life today, if there are areas in your life today that you know aren't pleasing to the Lord, don't think that just because you haven't faced His wrath up to this point that therefore God is indifferent and you don't have to worry about it. That's what leads Peter that's what leads Peter to say this in that verse 16. The ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. The important words are twist to their own destruction. People have different views on a lot of things, right? You've been around long enough. We've talked about enough things from this pulpit. People have different views on baptism. People have different views on the Lord's Supper. People have different views. Calvinists and Arminians. Premillennialism, postmillennialism. But Peter isn't thinking of any of those things, not any of them, when he warns about twisting scriptures to your destruction. He specifically means blotting out the doctrine of God's wrath. And a lot of Christian writers are doing it today. Blotting out the doctrine of divine wrath because, well, look at, look around you. God doesn't do anything. He doesn't do a thing. I've seen people do it. I've seen people take certain verses in the New Testament about God's mercy and grace, and will use those verses. They'll open their Bibles right in front of you, read Bible verses to justify just a bold continuance in sin. It seems when our minds are really darkened, we can actually get to the place where we begin to mentally turn the Bible inside out to avoid its most basic truths. So let me encourage you. Let me encourage you in a totally different direction. Let me encourage you in a direction away from destruction. Let me take you away from destruction. Let me urge everyone today to so love the holy presence of God, to so expect and long for the appearing of Jesus Christ, and to so refuse any hint of compromise with sin that will be spotless and blameless and at peace on the day when Jesus comes again. What do you say? <laughs>